Welcome to 900 Ackland Avenue. This is the podcast for the Ackland Avenue Church of Christ. This episode is from a sermon J.P. Conway preached on September 9th, 2019. The sermon was on 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Thanks for joining us. We're in 1 Corinthians 11 today. If you're a guest with us, we had the goal to read every verse of 1 Corinthians out loud. I regretted that decision more than once. A few nervous laughs to support me there. We're on page 930 in your pew Bible. Page 930 in your pew Bible. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and we're just going to do half the chapter. So kids, if you get nervous when I'm still in verse 3, just know we're only doing half the chapter today. Some parts of the Bible are really simple. Some themes of the Bible are really simple. God loves you. Jesus died on the cross for human sin, rose from the dead, and he's coming back someday. And we should love each other and love our neighbors as we wait for that. But some parts of the Bible are challenging and complicated and difficult. And what I always think of first on that is is that section uh, in the Gospels when Jesus talks about the destruction of the temple and the end of the world. It's in Matthew, I think it's Matthew 24, Mark 13, and Luke 21. I could be a little off there. We do that passage every December. And every year I'm like, I don't know what all this means. I mean, I don't. I've been trying for years. I don't know what all of it means. Other section of scripture I think of is Romans 9, 10, and 11. When it's talking about the relationship between Jews and Gentiles and kind of historic redemption and what that's going to look like. The Gentiles are being grafted in. The Jews still have a purpose. And I don't know what all that means. I don't. When I read in 2 Peter that some of Paul's letters are hard to understand, I always say, Amen. There are things that are really hard for me to understand. And I include the beginning of 1 Corinthians 11 in that. And not just this morning, but for years, I've included 1 Corinthians 11 in these sections of Scripture that are hard. Now, just because it's hard for me doesn't mean it's hard for everyone. And just because something is hard to understand doesn't mean we shouldn't seek to try. We should seek to try to understand God's gift of Scripture to us as much as possible. A mentor of mine told me this years ago, a rule of thumb for biblical interpretation, that has helped me so often. He said, we should use the simple parts of the Bible to help us understand the challenging parts of the Bible. We shouldn't start with the hard parts and let that interpret all parts. Start with the simple parts and let those help us interpret the hard. Here's a perfect example. We're going to get to 1 Corinthians 15 in a few weeks. There's going to be a reference to the baptism of the dead. I still don't completely know what that means. But when I'm trying to understand baptism, I don't start with that. I start with all these other scriptures, and then maybe at the very end I try to understand what 1 Corinthians 15 means when it talks about the baptism of the dead. So we start with the simple parts, and then they help us understand the more challenging parts. Well, let me introduce 1 Corinthians 11 in this way. A few years ago, um, as we do every few years, my family traveled to the Northeast, specifically to Connecticut, to visit the first church that we worked with. Uh, and we visited a lot of families there that we're very close to, but we took one day to go off and kind of do some historical sightseeing, and we made the short drive over to Plymouth, Massachusetts. 
and specifically we went to Plymouth Plantation. And they have one of these historical reenactment type of villages. Probably a lot of you have been to these, whether it's Colonial Williamsburg. We have some of these around here where you can do camps and various things. But you walk into Plymouth Plantation, and it's as if you've gone back to the early 17th century. I mean, they're dressed up. They say things like, you're wearing weird clothes today, you know, because they're so in character, and you're like this, you know, someone, you're like Bill and Ted for the future or something coming in. And, um, I did Bill and Ted was in my notes. But anyway, um, thank you, John. But, um, you know, you're walking around, and it's completely like it would have been back then. And it's like going through a time warp. And I always love doing that because I'm like, there are some things that are exactly the same, but then there are some things that are very different. And the differences kind of jump off the page. A lot of those differences are style. But then we have some values. I got into a talk with an ancient pilgrim about the Bible. And, and there were some things about the Bible we saw the same way. It was really interesting. I grew up in the church of my youth. We would see reading Paul's letters as a type of historical reconstruction. And so walking into 1 Corinthians, Romans, or Galatians, or 1 and 2 Timothy... It was like going to Plymouth Plantation where they wore funny clothes maybe and they did things that were a little different. But it was like going into a historical reenactment where you could learn various things. I confess to you that I saw our worship service as a historical reinstruction too. As a child, I pictured that if I'd gone back in a time machine to the early church, our worship service in the 1980s and 1990s when I was a child, was an exact historical reconstruction of the first century. And when I remember when I got to the age where I realized that wasn't completely true. Specifically, I don't think Paul preached at the time. Right? There were certain things of style that were different. But yet there were a lot of things that were the same. They told a lot of the same stories, read a lot of the same scriptures, to communion, various things that we do now. Here's why I say all this. As we read 1 Corinthians 11 this morning, there are going to be some things that immediately jump off the page that are different than our gathering this morning. And I think we should take those differences very seriously. We should ask questions, even if those questions make us a little nervous. Why? Because worship is really important. And they took worship very importantly, and I think we should too. Let's just read the first verse by itself. And you'll see with the chapter ending, some people want to include that in chapter, as part of the thought of chapter 10. So anyway, 1 Corinthians 11, 1 is simply this. Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. And as, as I just mentioned, some people know, should they put this with the thoughts in chapter 10 or chapter 11? We know throughout that Paul has been trying to offer this example so that they would follow him. And he's trying to imitate Christ. What is the example of Christ? Christ was a sacrificial servant. And what Paul has been doing, he's been talking about how he's been a tent maker and he hasn't been looking to them for money. He's been talking about them, their relationship with idolatry and temple worship. He's about to talk to them about his worship, their worship practices. But throughout he's been saying, I've been trying to live a life of sacrifice. Because I believe that's Christ's example. So I want all of you to lead a life of sacrifice as well. 
And this is in the midst of a very status-driven Corinthian culture. So whether we're talking about our relationship with the world, which is chapters 8, 9, and 10, or our gatherings together, friends, we have to be willing to sacrifice. If this church is going to go where God wants it to go, uh, and this church is going to continue for another 85 years, and that's how long we've been in existence. What it's going to take is every single person being willing to sacrifice. Every single man, woman, and child in our midst being willing to sacrifice. Because that's the example of Jesus. That's what Paul tried to model, and that's what we should model as well. And sacrifice, by the way, isn't enjoyable. <laughs> And yet it's what we're called to. Let's pick it up in verse 2. And we'll read through verse 10 as we begin. I praise you for remembering me in everything. And for holding to the traditions just as I pass them on to you. But I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ. And the head of woman is man. And the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It is the same as having her head shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, she might as well have her head, have her, not her head cut off. For if a woman does not cover her head, she might as well have her hair cut off. But if it, but if it is a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, then she should cover her head. A man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man did not come from woman, but woman for man. Neither was man created for a woman, but woman for man. It is for this reason that a woman ought to have authority over her own head because of the angels. And as I mentioned, there's at least two different things that are going on that are, that are a little different from how our service might look this morning. And it might even be more evident to some of the children and teenagers who read this. Here's the two things that jump off the page. Women are praying and prophesying in this assembly. And two... Women are wearing head coverings when they do it. And these are two practices that are different from the current practices of the Acme Church. So let's wrestle with that for a few minutes. First of all, I think the word prophesying, sometimes uh, we don't really know what to do with that. Because I think we're accustomed to the idea of prophesying being the idea of fortune telling. I'll tell you what's going to happen uh, in the future. And that's the idea of prophesying. I'm going to say, who's going to win the ball game tomorrow? Who's going to win the election or whatever? I'm going to tell the future is prophesying. As we look at biblical prophecy, we do see that there were times where prophets could tell the future. And yet that seems to be a very small amount of what prophecy really was. By and large, prophecy is divinely inspired speech. It's when someone speaks, and it's as if they have a word from the Lord. It's as if it's not just them talking, but they're offering, they're offering encouragement or insight 
or wisdom in a way that you get the sense, I believe this comes from God. And you've probably experienced this at various times in your life. And maybe sometimes that was in a worship service. Maybe sometimes it was outside of a worship service. But this idea of divinely inspired speech. Here's what we think uh, the assembly looked like. Turn the page and go to chapter 14. Chapter 14 and verse 26. This is on page 933 of your pew Bible. Chapter 14 and verse 26. What then shall we say, brothers and sisters, when you come together, each of you has a hymn or a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation? Everything must be done so that the church may be built up. And we get the sense that when they came together, it would have been a smaller group than this, probably 40 or 50 people, that all those that desired to share had a hymn or a scripture or a word of encouragement. And when Paul says here, a word of instruction or a revelation, this is the idea of prophecy, of divinely inspired speech. And everyone would kind of bring something to share when they would come together. Now, for those of you that have been around, you already know the interpretive difficulty in me saying that women were praying and prophesying in the assembly. Stay there in chapter 14 and look at verse 34. And in a few weeks we'll have... Uh, a greater treatment of this, but we should go ahead and read it now. 1 Corinthians 14 and verse 34, it says, Women should remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission, as the law says. And at this point, we have an interpretive difficulty, because for many people, it's a, it's a tad confusing. If women are praying and prophesying, chapter 11 why has Paul told them to be silent in chapter 14? And here is where each of you are going to have to make a choice in how you interpret this. Because there's either one of two things going on. Perhaps there's a third or fourth option, but we'll at least look at the two main options. Here are the choices. In 1 Corinthians 11, women were praying and prophesying in the assembly. But then in chapter 14, Paul is talking about how things got chaotic, or disorderly, and we're going to give this a greater treatment in a few weeks, okay? And so Paul is saying, when people, when things become chaotic, when things become disorderly, you say, be quiet. Similar to sometimes when the children are running around after service. Hey, be quiet. We're going to talk about why he might have said that specifically to women and not to men in a few weeks. But that's how that thought process goes. Women were praying and prophesying in 11, but when it got chaotic in chapter 14, he told them to be quiet. The other way to interpret this is that women were praying and prophesying in chapter 11, but it was not in the worship assembly. It was perhaps in the home or another type of gathering, or maybe it was just kind of when they saw each other on the streets. And a woman gave another woman or a man a word for the Lord, and that was a type of prophecy. But then they would say, in the assembly, according to chapter 14, women are not speaking, they're being silent. But elsewhere in the community, they are praying and prophesying. Now, personally, I take the former interpretation that I believe women were praying and prophesying in the assembly. It's, it's a longer conversation than I have time for today. But I believe the context of chapter 11 is very much the assembly. Next week, we're going to do the second half of chapter 11, where Paul talks about them taking communion. And that's very much the assembly being together. So that's how th that is outlined, and obviously it's a longer conversation than that.
If that makes us nervous, it gets worse. Um, so I, I get through this with a sense of humor. Um, we've got the issue of head covering. So I've spent time recently, uh, over the last six months or so, reading just about anything I can get my hands on on, on head coverings. Um, see, my eyes almost bleeding. But anyway, here's what, and it gets really interesting. We're not even certain what they meant by head covering. Some people think it was just a veil. Some people think it was like a total head covering, and, and we're probably most accustomed to those in Islamic tradition nowadays. Some think it was more like they would pull, as a sign of respect, they would pull the back of their shirt up over their head. I'm not going to do it to Jeremy here, but as if he just kind of yanked it up. That sounds like a middle school prank, actually. But um, Some people think they just kind of lifted their shirts up on their head as a sign of respect. And some people think that if head covering was more of a euphemism for just hair. The hair, the long hair, was in and of itself the head covering. We do know that there were times that uh, males wore head coverings too in certain cultures, whether it was Roman tradition or, or Greek tradition at this time. Um, kind of the best stuff I saw on this, that a head covering was a type of a purity statement. Um, the, in their culture, they saw um, hair was very desirable. It was very attractive to them. And to see someone... Do not, make, do not try to make me laugh while I'm doing this. You probably know how I just called it out. But anyway, um, they saw hair as very attractive. And um, they... I got distracted. I got off my notes. I'm about to get back on it. I knew this was going to be a rough day when I woke up this morning. Um, they thought, um, so it was a sign if you did not have a head covering, it was a sign that you um, were either sexually available and sexually promiscuous, or a sign that you had been sexually violated in some way. Um, slaves and freed women, so women who had been slaves but were now free, they were not allowed to wear head coverings. Because the assumption was, and this is tragic and horrific to even think about, but the assumption was that if you had ever been a slave, therefore, of course, you had been sexually violated. So, slave women and freed women were not allowed to wear head coverings. But women who were pure did wear head coverings. And there were laws about this. You could get in great trouble if you were wearing a head covering but weren't supposed to, or you were wearing a head covering but you weren't supposed to. And the interpretation of this that I found the most beautiful is that Paul is saying, all of our women are going to wear signs of purity when we come together for worship. We're not going to come to worship, and some of our women are going to have signs of purity, and other women are going to come in without the signs of purity, but there's this assumption that they're either promiscuous or they've been abused. But either way, they have um, a history. So we kind of have this um, hierarchy of women in our assemblies, women with histories and women without histories. I'm going to say that. And so Paul is saying we're going to put head coverings on both of these women as a way of saying we're not going to have a hierarchy based on people's past. There's a lot of literature on this. Don't Google this, by the way. 
I made that mistake. Uh, look for uh, recommended resources because you can you can lose your mind uh, in cyberspace looking at all this. In summary, we think there was a principle behind this of modesty and respect. Um, kids, you can look around, and most women don't wear head coverings now. And so by that statement, you can see that we don't think that's a binding practice. At the same time, we're very respectful of those that do see it as a binding practice. Um, we have brothers and sisters in other faith traditions that see this as a, as a binding practice. And also, I mentioned our, our Muslim friends, many of them would see this as a practice too. For women that choose to do this, we're not judgmental, uh, but we don't see this as a binding practice. Paul, though, does seem to base this in something that was very much uh, timeless for him. And let's go back to verse 3. This is probably what makes me most feel uncomfortable, and that's probably why we should read it again. Verse 3. But I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. So, what you need to know if you ever start to research this, that the word head there is the Greek word kephale, and sometimes it can be translated head, and sometimes it can be translated source. And that's the very first thing you notice when you start studying this, because there's like a battle between head and source that people have written at, written on more pages than any of us would ever want to read. Okay, but that becomes the main battle: is this idea of headship, is it, um, or this idea of kephale, is it a head thing or is it a source thing? Here are the three best interpretations of this that I found, and I want to briefly do this. I promise this won't take forever. I think the idea of hierarchy between male and female makes many of us feel a little uncomfortable. But I want to say this, just because it makes us feel uncomfortable doesn't necessarily mean that it's wrong. Um, we have to be very careful when we get in things like this. There are certain things in the Bible that violate our culture norms, but we have to do the, we have to go with the best interpretation of the scripture as led by the Holy Spirit, and not just what we want to do. And do you know why I say that? Because the parts of the Bible, there are parts of the Bible that bothered me when I was 20. And now there are parts of the Bible that bother me when I'm 40, but they're different parts of the Bible. Because I change over time. So it can't just be what I want it to mean. And, uh, and I don't mean that, don't try to guess where I'm going with that. I'm just saying that as a principle, okay, that we have to be careful in this. So here's what I think is the best three uh, interpretations of this. So one idea is the idea of permanent hierarchy. And there's a permanent hierarchy between the Father and the Son. And then there's a permanent hierarchy between the Son and men. And there's a permanent hierarchy between men and women. Quick pro-con list, because that's my idea of a good time. Um, the pro of that view, it's a very simple, literal reading. The con of that view is it violates historic notions of the Trinity. Um, the idea that how could the Father-Son be equal if the son is always subordinate to the father. Okay? The fancy term for this, if you try to research this, is eternal subordination. Okay? So it seems to violate certain notions of, of how Christians have historically understood the Trinity. It would say the son was always subordinate. The second view is the idea of temporary hierarchy. Meaning, in a temporary way, 
The son was subordinate and submissive to the father. And in a temporary way, women or wives may be submissive to men or their husbands. Uh, the pro of that is it seems to be a better understanding of the Trinity. Specifically, we think of Philippians 2, when it says the son did not consider equality with God something to hold on to, but made himself nothing. And we can picture in the incarnation, Jesus humbled himself and came to earth. Maybe took a submissive role, but that was not an eternal role because the Father and Son are equal of the same essence. But the con of this view, though, is it doesn't seem to represent the mutuality that we find elsewhere about the man and woman or the husband and wife relationship. Go back to chapter 7, if you can, really briefly. Go back to chapter 7 and verse 4. And this, this was the conversation on, on sexuality. Paul says, The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. And in that passage, we see a type of mutuality that doesn't seem to speak to hierarchy, whether permanent or temporary. <coughs> it seems to violate that notion. So the third interpretation that we see a lot on this is the idea of uh, creation uh, recitation. So this idea of reciting the creation story. And it would go like this. Okay? Christ came from God, the Father. Man came from Christ. Woman came from man. Where have you read this story before? That's the story of creation, right? The Father sends the Son to earth, later at the Incarnation, but then at creation, God creates man, and then out of the side of man, He creates the woman. And that was the creation order. But then we have it here in verse 11, verses 11 and 12. Nevertheless, in the Lord, and this is back to chapter 11, I'm sorry I'm moving so fast. Chapter 11, verses 11 and 12. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as woman came from man, so also man is born of woman. But everything comes from God. So what it's saying here is, specifically this interpretation, in the beginning, woman came from man in the creation story. Eve is created from Adam. But later on, in the story of new creation... When Jesus does not consider equality God something to hold on to that comes down the incarnation, Jesus comes from Mary, and man comes from woman. So in the beginning, we have woman coming from man, but in the new creation story, we have man coming from woman. And in this, we have a type of interdependence and mutuality that's really interesting. Some people then, in this view, go on to see chapter 11, chapter 11, Verse 11's relationship with verse 3 is kind of a, you have heard it said, but I tell you type of rhythm. There's a lot there. Position 3, option 3 is my favorite there, but it's a real dicey conversation. I need to move on because all of you are probably wondering, does Greg Wagner need to cut his hair? So that's what's coming next. Okay. <laughs> Verses 13 through 16. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a disgrace to him? 
but that if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. For long hair is given to her as a covering. If anyone wants to be contentious about this, we have no other practice, nor do the churches of God. So, Paul seems to be upset with men having long hair here. And, and one of the interesting things about this, in a lot of Paul's writings, it seems like, man, he was upset with women for something. We're trying to figure out why he's upset with women. He's upset with the men, too. Whatever the problem was, men were part of the problem, which probably doesn't surprise us. Um, if you grew up like me, you heard this passage in reference to 80s hair bands. Looking back, there may have been reasons to be suspicious of 80s hair bands, but I'm not sure this was it. What do we think is going on here? Many think it's it's cultural notion of modesty, and what was modest and appropriate in their time. It may remind us of 1 Timothy 2 that talks about braided hair. Probably most of you are not worried about braided hair now. Okay? But this notion that it said something culturally when men were trying to have long hair. Another thing that comes up a lot in the literature, we do believe there is a group in the Corinthian church, and this was related to some of their notions of idol worship and paganism that they had come out of, but this notion that you could transcend gender in worship, and you could reach kind of this genderless stage, because they believed angels were genderless, okay? So you could reach kind of this genderless stage, and Paul is trying to say, no, male and female is a created good. And when we come together to worship, we are affirming that male and female is a created good. And it, it's a part of your created being. It's not a bad thing to try to escape from. And so we should not try to become an angel or something like that in worship. Well, if I've illustrated anything this morning, it says some of this is hard. So I go back to being at uh, Plymouth Plantation and uh, thinking about what it was like to be in the 17th century and thinking, I don't want to go back to these times. I don't want to wear long sleeve cotton pants and shirts all day. I don't want to be cook my food over an open fire every day. But there were aspects of that that I really admired. Some of their focus on God, family, each other, their notion of freedom, specifically religious freedom. And what you learn from those, those historical reconstruction experiences is maybe, maybe some of the practices are different, but maybe there are principles at play that need to be continued. And the pilgrims aren't the part of pointed today. That's an illustration. But when we read 1 Corinthians 11, what are the principles and what are the practices? And practices may be flexible and change over time based on our customs, but there are principles at play that are timeless. And here's at least one of those principles. They took worship very seriously because they saw worship as very important because it was about God because it formed them and it sent them out to be salt and light. Because their notion of worship was how we are when we come together is a microcosm of how the entire world should be like. So how we treat each other, how we live together, we want to plant the seed and the entire world be that way. So what we're going to have to decide, is this a microcosm of what we want the entire world to be like as led by the Holy Spirit? And I confess, I don't have all the answers. I think that's been clear this morning. 
But family, we need everyone to be in prayer. We need everyone to be committed to humility. And we need everyone to be willing to sacrifice. The elders have called on this to be a year of discernment. And I don't know how it will turn out, but I'm quite confident of this. No one will get their way. Because that's biblical. Let's stand together and sing. You've been listening to 900 Ackland Avenue, the podcast for the Ackland Avenue Church of Christ. If you'd like more information about our community, our church website is http colon slash slash org. Thanks again for joining us. God bless.